Welcome to our first event. I'd like to, to welcome you to our first event of the year hosted by our New York City PropTech Committee. Um, but before we get started, I want to share a few Cornet announcements. Um, firstly, our next New York City chapter event will be on February 8th at 12 p.m. Eastern. Uh, this event will focus on the importance of workplace age equity across the spectrum. And then on February 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern, a strategy and portfolio planning event titled Supply Chain 2022, the good, the bad, and the ugly will be held. Uh, so be sure to sign up for those. Um, and then a few reminders for the audience, we are recording this session. Um, so, and also please stay on mute and stay off video so that we can maintain a connection bandwidth. Um, also, we have a few polling questions during the event, so be ready to answer those. Finally, if you have questions for the speakers, you can submit them into the chat box and we'll save some time at the end of the Q&A with the panel speakers. So now let's get started with today's program. I'd like to introduce Matt Jafoon, who will be our moderator for today's event. He is the co-founder of Occupier, a lease management software platform helping commercial tenants and brokers manage their real estate footprint and comply with lease accounting standards. Prior to founding Occupier, Matt was an early stage employee at BTS and a corporate real estate broker at JLL. So Matt, take it away. Thanks, Carlos. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining our, uh, our program here today. We're going to have some uh, awesome conversation, I think. Um, kind of first and foremost, let's, uh, let's dive in and, and meet our, our panelists here, Alex, uh, Dave, and Mac. Alex, why don't you take it away and give a little introduction of yourself? Happy to. Thank you uh, for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Alex Angeline. So I started my background in architecture, working abroad in, in Switzerland primarily. Um, went from architecture to really wanting to get more involved in, in the startup scene and disruptive tech. Um, so joined Notel uh, in its early stage in London, um, and then now uh, recently moving back to New York to, to build a real estate team here at, at Gorillas. So I'm very excited for the chat today. Well, Dave, where, where do you hail from and, and give us your, uh, your background and, and career path? Uh, good morning from the West Coast. So I live in the Bay Area. I work for Pinterest, which is uh, San Francisco-based. I'm the head of Global Workplace. Uh, and I've spent uh, pretty much all my career in corporate real estate on the occupier side. Uh, started with uh, GLL, um, assigned to uh, corporate tech clients, started all the way as an entry-level facilities uh, uh, coordinator, uh, and expanded my, my scope over the years. And so about halfway through my career, um, switched over to the owner side, and I've uh, been doing that ever since. So uh, happy to be here and, and thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Mac, old friend, give us your, uh, give us your bio. Thanks, Matt. Hey everyone, I'm Mac Friedman. Um, DraftKings is head of real estate. I've been at DraftKings for just over six and a half years and uh, seen us grown from about 125 people to 3,500 people across North America and EMEA. So at DraftKings, I oversee all of our leasing, design, construction. I also manage our workplace experience and facilities teams um, across the world. Before that, I was briefly at uh, Tishman Spire and uh, studied undergrad at BU. And I've uh, been in Boston for better or worse my whole life. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be working with people like Matt. Uh, Matt and I met back in, I think, 2015. And it's uh, been great collaborating with him since. So excited to share some insight today. Cool. Thanks, guys. So just, just to kind of set the baseline here of what kind of our, our, our discussion will be about. We're, we're gonna to touch on how technology can help accelerate the project uh, transaction and project delivery. Um, I think the three companies that are, are represented here 
you know, could all be categorized as high growth companies, high tech companies, but they all have their unique needs. And, you know, that might impact real estate strategy specifically around transactions and project delivery. Um, and, you know, just to underpin all of that, like where, where my background comes from is in the corporate transaction management space, um, kind of seeing firsthand a little bit how clunky that process can be, um, how hard it is to wrangle a lot of stakeholders across uh, several different disciplines to execute on that transaction strategy, which is quite frankly, why we founded Occupier to become kind of that um, system of record for, you know, doing your deals, collaborating with your brokers and all your other stakeholders, and then managing your, your uh, real estate obligations uh, going forward. So, um, you know, our, our three panelists here can kind of chime in on, on the unique needs of their business. Maybe we can start with, with Alex here. Tell us a little bit about gorillas, like what your guys mandate is your mission and how that, um, that you know, unique uh, business model might impact how you guys think about real estate, specifically around growth. Yeah, um, so Gorillas is a is a quick commerce platform which really aims to bring groceries and other goods to people uh, in an unprecedented speed, um, and that is primarily done by essentially acquiring space in communities and, and putting these fulfillment centers as close as possible to density. Um, I think the unique component of our real estate, it's multifaceted. So we're, we're building a last mile logistics network, right? And we're taking the supply chain of traditional retailers and fragmenting that and building these nodes across cities um, in these dense neighborhoods. And that requires an approach to real estate that is slightly different than traditional retail. Um, one being we need to have you know, some sort of a distribution center, a large core place where we can procure and store our goods. And, and the second piece of that is, is these MFCs. So they need to be as close as possible to our core uh, neighborhoods. Um, they don't need to be in you know, the traditional high street fashion where the foot traffic is important. They can actually be in, let's say, less obvious spaces. So we can be more creative around you know, how we position our, um, our distribution network uh, on the local level. Um, I think, you know, generally speaking, the key piece, the way I see our real estate strategy really is, is Kind of a three-pronged approach where at the foundational level we have to have a software that is really feeding us data to make decisions around these neighborhoods um, that is critical to understand the types of products that we need to be having in our assortment um, and it'll it'll really help us understand the long-term profitability of some of these these warehouses so that kind of foundational layer really stems from overlap with our data science team and being able to look at these regions on a very local level understand who is living in these neighborhoods and how to serve them best. Uh, the second piece is really, how do we manage the existing real estate pipeline process? So we have a CRM software, which helps us keep track of the pipeline because our growth is, is, is quite exponential at the moment. We have to really have structure to our requirements per region um, and per state. So a CRM process has been critical in, in this in-between state. And the third is, our lease administration. Uh, Matt, you mentioned a source of truth. I, I, you know, I think I'm not gonna say that we don't, we, we use Occupier and it's, it's been incredible as a source of truth to A, keep our real estate team lean um, and, and generally allow us to have one place to look at all of our liabilities in one very streamlined environment. So um, those kind of three levels is how we accomplish um, the scale that we're seeing today, uh, Gorillas. Well, what, what, when, we, when you talk about growth, what, what is the scale that you're trying to get to, uh, in, at least just in the U.S., because you are a European company? I mean, if you're trying to place goods in people's doorsteps in 15 minutes, you, 
you're going to have to have a massive real estate portfolio from, from a location comp perspective. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, you know, we're looking at this creatively. I think the way we've started to play this out in New York is we've put, you know, we, we, we followed the density, right? So where the most people are is where we've, we've put our, our warehouses. So you'll find us in Manhattan, you'll find us in Brooklyn. Um, I think we are exploring alternative ways of delivering. So, you know, things like maybe our fleet itself is diversified. So we have e-bikes today, maybe tomorrow there's, you know, a different type of, of mode of getting these goods farther. Um, so I think in, in general, the real estate will be flexible and it will challenge us to be more creative with how we put deals together with owners and operators. Um, I think that's a, a big push for us going forward. Cool. Switching gears, Dave. I mean, Pinterest is kind of a household name at this point. You guys are, are a well-established company, but um, I'm, I'm sure also on, the, on kind of the, the cutting edge of how people occupy space and how you create a workplace for people. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of the current business drivers that Pinterest, how you guys are thinking about um, applying uh, real estate strategies around transactions and growth uh, based on those uh, kind of high level business goals. Certainly. And I think um, like a lot of companies pre-COVID, um, I think we had it pretty well figured out. Our, our spaces were recognized as being um, extremely forward facing, amenity rich, um, very well reviewed. And um, that was working. And on the growth curve that we had, get, get a few more employees, open more space, build it out to our standard. And, and that was the strategy pre-COVID. Um, now everything has changed. I mean, that's not, that's not news to everyone on this call, uh, but we have additional variables that have come into play that we never had to consider before as corporate real estate executives. So attendance, occupancy, uh, the ge geography of where people live um, has completely impacted how we think about sizing and programming real estate. And so that's just from the, the sizing and location perspective. Uh, and then you have sort of the built, the built environment. What does that actually need to provide to employees? And the truth of the matter is we don't know much about that yet. Uh, I'd love to say that we have it figured out. Uh, but the reality is one, we don't know when this is all said and done, where people are going to be on the map. Um, are they going to return all to where they, they were pre-COVID? Absolutely not. We know that people have scattered and some of them have moved away for good. Um, and, and how do we deal with that as a company? So again, both the distribution of real estate, how much we need, but also how do we build? Um, so the traditional office of, of workstations and conference rooms and amenity space, that mix is probably not the right mix anymore. And so we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about like what that could be. We have a couple of office projects in flight where we're trying some things out and doing some things really differently from how we built offices before. Um, but the reality is um, we don't know yet. And so we're really trying to preserve our optionality um, and, and technology plays a key role in that in terms of, um, you know, so what's, what's ended up happening is our, our lease portfolio has really become a, a portfolio of many short-term leases. And while that gives us flexibility and, and we're not stuck with decisions for long periods of time in most cases, it means there's a lot of churn, a lot of activity and the potential for missing a critical date or messing something up is extreme, extremely high when you have this constant uh, churn of um, normal transactional activity. So um, the technology really helps us make sure that we stay on top of that, that we're, we're monitoring and we're not missing things. Yeah. Would you say that, um, I know you're a San Francisco based company, would that um, kind of, uh, kind of mobility of employees uh, ring true across all of your global locations? Or are you 
seeing a, a more kind of heavily weighted um, around the headquarters? So we were a very headquarters dominant company pre-COVID. And that was something that was an issue of itself is like, okay, how, how distributed do we really want to be long-term? So definitely in the Bay Area, we've seen a lot of distribution of people going to lower cost locations. So I'd say that that trend is probably true um, in the U.S. And so we've made moves to make sure that we can, we have legal entities and we can pay people in all the states. Um, so in the U.S., and I, and I think to a large extent Canada, I would say that's true. I don't know that it's as prevalent in our European locations. Uh, I think there's more restrictions on where people need to live and, and work. And so it's, it's a bit more complicated from a tax perspective. Um, so I think the sort of the macro trends are, are global trends, um, but we're seeing it really applied very strongly in the U.S., if that makes sense. Yep, totally makes sense. Um, Mac, I would imagine a lot of that stuff rings true for you. I mean, if anyone's visiting Boston anytime soon, you guys should stop by the DraftKings headquarters. Mac, Mac was uh, integral in building out an, an awesome space for their people uh, that really kind of matches their brand and quite frankly provides a pretty awesome employee experience, but then COVID hit, right? So, you know, from a headquarters perspective, I would imagine you're experiencing a lot of the stuff Dave is, but maybe talk a little bit about kind of that hyper growth trajectory that DraftKings has been on and what some of the considerations are for you guys and how you think about uh, your, your real estate strategy. Yeah, um, you know, I think what you just said, Matt, is really accurate. And David, as you went through kind of the description of what the space meant to Pinterest before COVID versus what it has been now versus what you see it in the future, um, that echoes very true and rings home to me as well. Um, it's very similar, right? I think a lot of people here understand that working, quote unquote, real estate on the occupier side, if you're in a tech company like a Pinterest, like a DraftKings, it's not as much of a, you know, every day you're going out and trying to get a lease done kind of role. It's much more of managing a team, creating a real workplace experience and realizing that, you know, we are a service org to the company as itself. But at the same time, we have an opportunity to really impact the way that people work and frankly experience the company. So, you know, as we look at, you know, kind of everything you just mentioned, Matt, uh, I look back to like 2015 when I first started and our real estate strategy and approach has always been much more of a corporate development feel and uh, kind of path than it is a, uh, I would say, you know, acquisition, get as much space as we can kind of strategy. I look at a company and this is more specific to Boston, but like Wayfair, which I believe is the biggest employer in Massachusetts. They have, I think, over 10,000 people. And, you know, their strategy has always been take as much space as we can, build out what we need to. We have more if we need to, but then we can always sublease it. And I think, you know, right before COVID hit, they were at a point where they had almost 350,000 square feet of vacant space in Boston. And, you know, that's been a little bit of a struggle for them, obviously, since COVID has happened. Our approach to DraftKings has always been the opposite. Because we are not a real estate company, because we are trying to focus our money into acquisition of customers and growing the business and trying to gain our foothold in an emerging market, we've been in pretty much constant construction, Matt, as you know, uh, for about seven years straight, where we kind of bite off the minimum chunk that we can and we go. And that worked to an extent. But as hypergrowth goes, once you go from that like 300 to 500 person range to multiple thousands of people, you're dealing with too much space and too many moving parts to operate in that capacity. To David's point also, um, I don't know what the exact number is, but I would say it's at least half of our population was not working at DraftKings before COVID started and they've never seen office spaces. The problem though, is that, you know, when you're hesitant to lease space and you're trying to be cost efficient with all this, 
what that results in is we were at a point where we were starting to move towards a lot more short-term leases as we tried to figure out what's the right amount of space to take. We were actually going to have a meeting with one of our founders uh, the week uh, that COVID hit. It was the week of March 6th uh, to tell him that we had to move half of his org to a temporary space across the city because we weren't done building out expansion space yet. Uh, it's impossible to keep up. And while COVID has really changed how we're thinking about using our space, how we think about, okay, maybe it's not so much creating space to make people stay in the office longer and provide amenities to keep them there, but it's more, how can we provide an onsite experience? That's also caused us to really take a step back and ask our employees questions, survey them, gather data to figure out what do they want? Because as anyone in my role can tell you, while it's not pertaining to my job exactly, the talent grab in our tech world is nuts right now. Uh, and if you're going to be a company that's going to quote unquote, force people back five days a week, probably not going to end up too well for you. So, you know, while we try to figure out how we can best use our space, we are also trying to frankly use technology and think more analytically about what do we do with our space? Uh, some of that is figuring out our new seating ratio, figuring out what makes sense, figure out what other companies are doing. Um, but it's difficult, right? And I'm interested to see how, you know, Alex's opinions on this and what he's using differ because his role is obviously in his company very different than like what a DraftKings is doing. But, you know, one thing that I think rings true for everyone here is we're operating in the unknown and it's this tough, tough line to balance up follow the industry standard to feel like you're kind of doing what everyone else is doing versus doing what you think actually might make the best impact. And that's why, you know, I'm trying to frankly participate in panels like this, meet more people and understand what other people are doing because there is no right answer right now. Sorry for the rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're, you've, you've certainly been thinking about this a lot and it's, it's permeating your, uh, your day to day, which is, which is awesome. Um, I think let's take a pause here for a second because uh, we're going to release our first polling question. Um, and we'll give everybody a couple of minutes to answer, and then we'll kick uh, we'll kick off into the next gear. Specifically, this question is around: Have you implemented a technology strategy um, around kind of your 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 transaction uh, management, your project delivery? All right, cool. Well, while people are answering that, uh, oh, here we go. We're about 50-50. All right, and I would imagine a lot, a lot of those um, answers are dependent on, on factors that uh, you know, are, are unique to your business as well. So whether you're you know, managing a huge pipeline like Alex, you're probably more uh, interested in trying to rein that in with technology. But if you're kind of a single headquarters type user, perhaps transactions aren't top of mind, therefore, you know, aren't on the laundry list of things that you're trying to go get budget approval for uh, in 2022. So uh, thanks everybody for, for your participation on that one. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and get down into like a little bit more nitty gritty of the transaction process. So Alex, you mentioned kind of how, you know, the, the company strategy is impacting um, how you guys analyze uh, local markets, how you you plan to grow city by city. Talk about a little um, more in detail, like what are the critical milestones or the critical um, data points that you guys are trying to learn uh, as you move through, like, let's just say opening up a new kind of micro fulfillment center in, in a neighborhood? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I think generally the, the demographic information is, is where we start as a foundational layer that will give us a lot of clarity around these communities. Um, we, before we go into any community with a lease, we're actually doing a significant amount of backend work to understand who is there as an existing retail player for grocery. Um, I'll keep it kind of specific to that vertical today because we are just doing grocery, but going forward, we'll look at other forms of, you know, goods and retails that we can serve. But in the beginning, it's like, so how is these communities being serviced with grocery today? What is the population density? Um, what is the income in these areas? Um, what types of other corollary brands are there that, you know, we see ourselves in as kind of disruptive kind of uh, tech companies. So we look at some trends like that and, and that will start to pull uh, a general basis for how I'm going to look at the actual re, uh, real estate component. And that will put together as almost a list of requirements that I'll go to market with. And I give a broker these three requirements, uh, hard requirements, which is, you know, the space. So we've pretty much got it down to a science around how much square foot we need to, to run an MFC. So the hard requirements are pretty fixed. Soft is, uh, you know, the electrical and HVAC, those types of things. And then the economic requirements, um, because we're looking at a certain payback period. So with those uh, requirements, I can really go to a broker and say, specifically, all these boxes need to be checked. And this is critically important because I'm seeing such a high volume of deals right now because we need to, you know, continue this growth acceleration. COVID has only been an accelerant for, for our business in the U.S., particularly in, in, in Europe. So the volume of deals that I need to be seeing on a weekly basis is significantly high. So having a CRM, you know, component as part of the way to manage this, uh, this pipeline has been in, incredibly instrumental and just, uh, a piece of structure that I've, I've really focused on heavily in, in my role directly because at that foundational layer, then we can make better decisions on the transaction um, once we have, you know, the brokers feeding us information that is um, precisely what we need and not just what's available. So um, that's, a, that's a big piece that, that we really stood up and have been pleasantly surprised with how it's allowed us to continue moving um, very fast. Are you are, are your brokers interacting with that CRM solution? Are you are you guys collaborating in real time with your teams, or is it, is yeah. it still kind of a game of like email and and you know file folders yeah. and trying to track down documents? I don't think we'll we'll get away from email quite yet. Um, I'm working on this extensively, but for now we have a let's say a, a survey capture place where any kind of details around a space before they send it to me via email has to be filled out in this format. And whenever I get this survey response, I know that it's, um, you know, they've, they've kind of went through all the, the general checklist and that survey is connected to uh, two forms, one in, in Google and one in uh, our, the CRM tool, which we use to do the underwriting and, and just the general uh, deal management through stages. So that's been, uh, you know, just applying that simple structure. It took a little bit to get everybody using it, but now that it's up and running, the brokers that we work with most regularly, you know, they do it kind of second, you know, they do it right off the, off the bat now. So it's, it's been just incredible in standardizing our, our pipeline. Cool. Dave, you mentioned your portfolio kind of has shifted into more of like uh, several kind of flexible leases versus kind of the, you know, anchor headquarters um, approach. How has that 
made your transaction process different? Is are you tracking different things? Are you engaging different stakeholders? I imagine you got to stay on top of stuff even more now. Like, is there are there certain kind of strategies that you, you've employed to make sure that you know that process is is, is airtight? Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't call it airtight. Um, so I think the complexity <laughs> has has uh, has risen. So the if you think about it in terms of a ratio of like the amount of work relative to the square footage, that ratio has increased because we have expirations coming more quickly. So the, the level of work relative to the amount of space we occupy has gone up. Um, and so again, the, the positive side to that is that we have flexibility. We're not locked in long in too many places where we might not wanna be. The downside is it creates a lot of, um, a lot of churn. Uh, we're functionally organized. So we have a transaction team, we have um, a facility team, we have a project management team. And so the level of coordination required across those functions um, is really high to make sure that we, we size and program correctly. We understand what a landlord is going to provide versus what our own team is going to provide. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely not airtight. Um, our technology is really focused on the lease admin side um, and making sure that we're, we're documenting things appropriately, that we're accounting for things appropriately. And so the requirements from the workplace team are very different than the requirements from the accounting team. So the accounting team is interested more in you know, gap calculations and straight lining of, of lease. And we're more interested in you know, actually the ability to, to manage the process and be able to, to find things easily. And so sometimes those requirements are in conflict, but I think longer term, we're going to need to need to think about how do we use technology to actually help us with the transaction management process, making sure that we're aligned with external partners, um, but also our internal partners, uh, making sure that project management and the transaction team are fully aligned um, prior to, to signing a deal. And so um, I think there's, there's still work for us to do to improve upon that. Yeah. I think your point about internal partners is specifically um, important because um, you know, every, every business unit stakeholder has some kind of need for real estate information, whether it's, you know, marketing or sales or, you know, IT and infrastructure and facilities, like there's going to be data that is derived from your real estate data process that somebody is going to need within the organization. So by providing that access to that source of truth, I think you could break down a lot of barriers and create a lot of efficiencies. Um, Mac, um, your, I mean, when we first met, you were like, like you described, it was like a whack-a-mole approach to like, hey, we got to nibble off a little bit of space here or there because we got to hire 20 engineers in Boston. Yeah. You know, we, we identified some good talent in Las Vegas. So we want to set up a WeWork there and, you know, plant a flag and see if we can grow that office. Is that still true for how you operate with your transaction process or has it become more complicated or less over, over time? Yeah, um, I would say that our general strategy has remained pretty true in the sense that going back to what I said before, where we're not going to jump into a market. Um, we've made that mistake in markets before where we actually did that in San Francisco a few years ago, where there was a founder push to just open up an office there blindly. Uh, and we never even made it into the office. We ended up subleasing a sublease before we even moved in because we didn't want to spend the money building it out. So events like that have really tapered our strategy and we are very careful. Um, we do a lot of short-term stuff. We have really good relationships with WeWork, with Regis. Um, Alex, we actually were working really closely with Notel um, before you know things unfortunately kind of went south and they were a great partner for us because what I'm trying to provide is a way to deliver space that we can attract talent to, that people want to go to, um, that can give us a short-term situation and give us flexibility, but also foster growth because 
our intent when we're opening an office is not to have five people there, right? It's to have five to start and then in a year have it be 150. And so, you know, when you look at Vegas, for example, which has kind of been our most active market other than Boston, uh, that's one where, you know, we started with a Regis space, we moved up to a WeWork space, we moved to a second WeWork space, we acquired a company that also had a WeWork space out there, we combined them into one WeWork, we took over the WeWork building. But the reason we're doing all this is trying to establish some sort of baseline with, to David's point, the other verticals in our business between finance, between recruiting, between our engineering needs, between our operational needs, to figure out what the actual right size of space is to take. And you know, COVID obviously throws in a whole other monkey wrench into that equation. But from our perspective, we're trying to manage our strategy in a sense of if we don't really know the answer, why should we speculate? Let's work with what we know. Let's control what we can control. And if we can do that and create relationships with these providers to actually build in this flexibility, we're probably in a better state at the end of the day. And what that's allowed us to do, like flash forward to today is, you know, we're building a second headquarters in Las Vegas while also maintaining a great relationship with WeWork. And we've grown enough with them and with our shared space providers to where they know and understand our strategy, which helps us actually work with them and implement it. And then it also allows for a much happier uh, overall group at the end of the day, which is nice. Yeah, definitely pleasing those internal stakeholders is kind of paramount to success because, you know, you could you could go and, and spend millions of dollars on real estate decisions. But, you know, if, if one business unit is dissatisfied with it, you know, that it could it could put a whole like wrench in the whole, whole, uh, operation. Um, let's hit pause again and throw up that second, uh, polling question. All right, cool. Well, while that answer uh, tabulates, let's let's keep going. So we're about a third, a third, a third. Okay, there we go. Um, interesting. So again, you know, people who are looking to uh, implement a technology probably have a reason for it, right? And that's either volume or just past experience where things may have screwed up along the way, and technology is a way to to solve those problems. Alex, you've been kind of more detailed in terms of your tech stack, if you will, and just to kind of defer, define the term tech stack, like what is that kind of layered approach to the technologies that you use in your, um, you know, in your, in your transaction process specifically, but also just throughout the business, we've, we've heard about lease administration and, and potentially even lease accounting softwares as well. Alex, you've mentioned CRM, so maybe walk us through that tech stack of, of like, where does data move through? Um, you know, in your real estate process and, and, and is, is there kind of a close, is there a, a closed enough loop where you feel like there isn't any sort of leakage of that data or, um, you know, stakeholders within or outside of the business that aren't kind of in, in that tech stack kind of workflow? 100%. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to touch on, which I did in the previous question was really around the, the stakeholders involved in my business. Um, I don't want to overlook this because it is incredibly complex. Um, I'm very much at the top of funnel. So the real estate strategy piece is 
putting the pin in the map. Beyond me, there is supply chain, uh, construction, procurement, operations, and then like our local warehouse teams that end up actually operating in this space. So we have quite a few parties that need to you know, be in sync when we look at, you know, for example, a new warehouse in, in, in Brooklyn. My, my process has to be so tight because procurement, supply chain operations are planning to you know, get goods to this facility hire people from this community to, to work in this facility. So if I skip, if I miss a, a week, you know, that disrupts everything. And on top of that, we have the, the challenging piece of marketing. Marketing is incredibly local for us. So when we go to Queens, you know, we're buying television ads in Queens and, and really being local to this community. And if I miss my date because the real estate deal is slipping, you know, it really, those costs become loss. And, and, and that's a, a big piece for us. So I just wanted to outline that the general uh, process across gorillas is, is there's there's many stakeholders involved and uh, but to the tech stack piece I think procedurally that that critical piece starts with the data um, so right now we have a very rich form of feedback in the form of uh, our customers right so when we're able to process that order those orders that we're seeing through the app um, I can directly correlate that against existing locations and project that against future locations. So, you know, for example, you know, New York, we can see how certain growth in a warehouse has been affected by advertising and promotions in these neighborhoods versus other neighborhoods where we, we didn't do so much of that. And that is, is really interesting because I come from a world in uh, Notel where, you know, the sales cycle was so long. You know, we were, we were working with people like Mac and, and um, David, you know, where to get someone in a space, it was, it was a very long sales cycle, but having this instantaneous feedback of consumers buying groceries, you know, all throughout the day has been incredibly rich in form of uh, informing, you know, our approach to other markets. Um, so that data layer really becomes the foundation for how we make decisions. Um, so we have a performance and planning team, which is very correlated with the real estate function. So I'm, I'm looking at, you know, real estate economics and they're feeding me information from the app in real time. And we're able to look at and, and try and find patterns ultimately um, with past performance and, and hopefully future performance. So um, that's been critical. And then from that piece, you know, I mentioned the CRM. That is really just a way to organize kind of the old school industry that real estate is. Uh, I think we're trying to challenge our brokers to be um, more tech savvy. Um, and I think the one thing that I'll, I'll mention here too about integrating tech into any of these businesses, the tools have become so easy. Um, you just need the stakeholders to buy in and try them. Like the ability to onboard, you know, something like a, a CRM tool or a, a portfolio lease management tool. The tools are so streamlined now where the lift operationally is, is very small. So I think it's really about just building internal internal momentum within your organization to really focus on this is the future. It will improve productivity across all of these you know functions within the business, um, and and it's the optimal way to work uh, going forward. So, you know, I think the lease admin piece really ties in all of these teams together: um, accounting, real estate, our operations, because we can really see a holistic glance at the, the whole portfolio. And I think that's been the most exciting piece is the asset management where we can measure the performance of these uh, fulfillment centers, fulfillment uh, centers across the, across our, our network today. So that will be the critical piece that's still kind of yet defined for me is like, how can I keep the streaming 
you know, view of each individual warehouse and really see which ones are working, which ones are, you know, this calibration layer um, is, is the key piece that I'm focused on right now. Cause I think the, the pipeline, the transaction are pretty, are pretty uh, in a good place. And now the next piece is, is management, asset management piece. So that's what we're working on. Yeah, it's a lot to work on. Uh, Dave, you, um, you know, you mentioned lease administration as, as, a, as a tool that is, is vital to your guys' you know, operation of the portfolio. Um, you also mentioned your accounting team and how they require data for their um, you know, FASB and IFRS compliance. Uh, maybe walk us through your tech stack and start it at the kind of inception of a deal, right? Like you guys got to go find a new WeWork or you're actually going to go build out a real um, long-term lease. Like how, how do you, uh, you know, kick off that process and, and where does tech sure. come in and, you know, do the brokers actually get involved with your technology today? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a stack yet, at least on the transaction side. I think we, we want it to get there. So we, we have aspirations to build a fully functional, technology architecture for all the, the workplace functions, uh, including technology and lease admin. So for all the reasons mentioned before, real estate data, you know, that could be square footage, that could be cost of occupancy, that could be a, a ton of different things. Um, that data currently resides in a lot of different places. And so you might get a square footage number from one group that differs from a square footage number from another group. And so uh, we have a lot of, we don't lack for tools. So we have a lot of disparate tools that are not well integrated at this point. So we have a construction management tool for the, the construction team. We have a lease admin tool for the transaction team. We, we use a, a work order tool that some of the uh, other parts of the company use. And so we have a number of different tools. Um, and one of, the, um, one of the biggest challenges for us implementing anything um, at a tech company tends to be the, the privacy and data security aspect. And so Unlike other places I've worked, it's not very difficult to convince people that you need a tool. Um, because we're a tech company, there's, there's a real openness to trying things and, and implementing things. Um, other places I've worked at, it's like, well, why do we need that? You know, why do we need this kind of software? Um, that's not an issue for us. The issue often is like, how many other tools is it going to touch? Is it going to touch some of our core systems? And so that process can be um, one of the biggest challenges is, okay, is it going to, is it going to touch the HRIS? Is it going to touch our um, our ERP. Um, and and th those are really the areas where things sort of get bogged down. Um, but hopefully in 12 to 18 months, if we talk again, we'll have a much clearer picture of what that architecture looks like. We'll have single source of truth as it relates to core real estate data that then resides in some, some sort of data warehouse, data lake, um, and feeds all, all the other systems we use. Because we're not going to our approach is really a, a best in breed point solution approach. We're not going to implement some sort of IWMS that tries to solve for everything. That's that's a decision we've made. So hopefully, again, if we talk in a, in a year and a half, um, we'll have made some of those connections. I'll be able to talk about it in terms of an actual stack and, and what that looks like. But we're still on that journey. Yeah, I think the the point of disparate data is is kind of the crux of it. And the the infosec, the security piece of it, is interesting because I can speak to that from a vendor's perspective. The rigor through which prospects and customers put us now when they're evaluating us as a vendor is just, it's almost, it's kind of mind numbing how, how many questions you just have to answer that are um, solving for those kind of data security um, points that you brought up, Dave, because it's almost like, yeah, the, to Alex's point that the solutions themselves today are pretty out of the box, right? It doesn't take 
months to deploy a lease administration tool anymore. But you know, when there's critical business information, personal identifiable information, and regulations that span geographies that need to be considered, you know, when um, thinking about how a vendor processes your data, those are things that start to become way more important in the procurement process. So I could definitely attest to having to fill out a lot of those InfoSec forms. Um, Mac, walk us through your tech stack if you have one. If it's if it's analogous to, to Dave's, um, you know, maybe there's disparate solutions. Maybe you got a single source. Do you have an IWMS? Like, how does DraftKings do it? Yeah, um, I guess like a lot of the stuff that Dave mentioned is very uh, hits home for me. Uh, we have to deal with pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, for us, it's actually taken to another level too because at DraftKings, not only are we a tech company with all this critical data, but we're also essentially a bank. Uh, we take credit card information, it's PII information. And so because of that, that puts on a whole other layer to basically vetting any vendor. Um, in fact, actually we were uh, you know, in our little meeting room before this panel started and I was taking this 20 minutes to literally complete my annual uh, vendor onboarding training, right? So there's things that we have to do and hoops that we have to jump through, but there's no way around that. That's just kind of the trade-off, if you will, to where David and I, we have to navigate through a very hectic and crazy network of, uh, you know, company restrictions to protect our customers. Uh, Alex's, I think, you know, technology struggle is more on the actual, like, get the correct facility up, put in the right place and actually optimize how they can get groceries to people, right? So it's two totally different things. Um, but, you know, I think like from a technology standpoint and how we like optimize that process, it doesn't exist yet. Like, I wish we were, I wish we had a better solution for it. But to everyone's point, it's like, what we're implementing is not rocket science. It's just that we are taking every single little precaution to make sure everyone's protected. And if this is going to have, like, does this need to be integrated into Workday? Does this need to have an actual ticket system in our Just Ask? Like, there's a lot of different layers to it. And that's, I think, just part of the job that we take on when you're, frankly, running, as I say, quote unquote, real estate at a tech company. Yeah. Awesome points all around. Um, I don't know if there will ever be that holy grail of that one single solution. I think. Right. You know, the original um, approach of the IWMS solutions is to be kind of that like, you know, magic bullet that solves every process uh, process and problem within the, the facilities and workplace org. But right. uh, I think the world has shifted pretty obviously towards point solutions. And if you could mesh those together and, you know, create that data lake or that data warehouse that Dave mentioned that different stakeholders can pull information from and, and have access to what they need when they need it. Um, that seems to be kind of the agile approach that most businesses are, are, are moving towards. Yeah. And I guess just to follow up on that, Matt, and once again, I know we're not supposed to be plugging things, but like, that is why, like for me, and I mean, you know, me, everyone else here doesn't, but I'm like a very solution oriented person. I want to get things done basically as fast and efficiently as I can and do the right thing. When we're looking at how we operate our space and how we expand, like technology is great when it helps. Right. But at the same time, I don't need a solution for a problem I'm not trying to fix. And I think that's like a key to all of this where uh, if I can get some basically lease administration software that does help me organize, but to your point, actually enables me to then give other people, my finance team, my legal team, access to all of our leases, access to all of our budgets, access to our operating plans. That's what makes a difference for me and actually improves my day to day. Yep, cool. Well, we're coming up on 15 minutes left here. Let's pop up that third polling question, which I think is, is going to be very kind of um, topical to, to what we're talking about here on this last question. 
Uh, what do you see as the main obstacles for successful transaction management technology rollout? And, you know, Alex uh, alluded to adoption, uh, you know, tenor reps is, is one area of adoption. Mac alluded to kind of customization to the workflow. Is that, is that a high priority or, you know, are there, are there other problems that are, are trying to be solved uh, from an adoption perspective? Last call here also for any uh, questions from our audience. Um, we've got one here in the chat that I can kind of start talking about while, while we get those final polling results up. Um, Daniel has asked, are there any tech solutions being used to filter slash process employee survey data and occupancy patterns? Um, anybody want to jump on that one? So I'm, I'm not sure I, under, I fully understand the question and the linkage between occupancy and survey data. What I, I think it, it's tying employee said, sentiment to actual location is was what I'm taking away from that. And so um, we started using a tool. I think it's actually a Workday product. It's called Pecan. So I think Workday um, uh, acquired it. And so that's our Pulse survey platform. Um, and so how it actually connects occupancy to the survey data, I'm not sure. But the level of um, detail and analysis it provides leaders throughout the company is is much better than I've seen from other tools. So I'm not I'm not trying to plug the product. I have no no skin in the game. Um, but typically with employee poll surveys, what you see is you get this huge data dump, and you get some scores like percentages, engagement, etc., and maybe a thousand comments. And it's really difficult to actually sort through and figure out what to do with it. And so with this particular tool, and again, there may be others out there on the market I'm, that I'm not familiar with, it actually does a lot of the analytics for you and points you in directions. Says, hey, you should probably take a look at this. Looks like this is a little lower than it should be. Uh, does a lot of benchmarking within your own company, within external companies, so you can see where, where the, the flash points are. So again, not, not a plug, just something I, I've seen firsthand. Um, and how we actually tie it to location from a workplace perspective, I'm not sure yet, but it's actually something we've been thinking about. It's like, okay, we, we must in, influence employee engagement to some extent with the offices and amenities we provide. Um, how direct that is, what that correlation is, I'm not totally sure, uh, but there must be a level of, of influence that our team has, and we would want to understand that. Cool. So we got our answers here on the uh, survey here. Adoption by internal stakeholders seems to be the biggest area of impediment um, that people foresee when adopting technology. So, um, you know, that maybe that's maybe that's different in the type of business as Dave mentioned earlier. They're a tech companies, so they're much more open to trying tech solutions as as, as an approach. But thanks everybody for uh, participating in that. We got another question here from Brian Lee. Um, how do you manage and determine KPIs? Uh, for productivity differences between in-office versus mobile workforce? In other words, how do you spy on your people? Who wants to take that one? Well, Alex, I'll say pin, 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 <laughs> Pinterest would never spy on its employees. Um, I'll say that. Uh, we're, we, take, we take that very seriously. And, and there's certainly um, you know, legal requirements in different parts of the world. But there, um, and so 
spying is uh, is probably a, a nasty term to, to use, but um, there are actually a number of tools out there uh, that I've seen on the market and I'm not, again, plugging them, advocating for them, um, but there are tools that actually consume metadata across email, calendar and other systems and try to give you some, some sense of, it's really not about like productivity, like, hey, I, I'd like to make sure that my employees are giving max effort, but really where is the organization healthy? Um, are there areas that are that are functioning well or, or less well? Um, and so there are a number of companies out there. I think it's a pretty new space. I think the bar to get those tools implemented in any company are pretty high just because of the level of uh, big brother aspect to it. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know how successful those, those firms have been in terms of acquiring customers. Um, because again, it's, it's a big ask, like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to look at all your emails, but promise not to read the content. We're just going to look at the, the timestamp and, you know, what department it went from. So, um, but there are, there are tech platforms out there that are doing that. And so um, anyway, that's my, my knowledge of it. Yeah. Matt, you mind if I jump in there for a sec? I do not. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, an, it's both things, David, and also what you mentioned earlier about um, how you're actually looking and gauging the survey results and everything. Um, so at DraftKings, so I, I report to our chief people officer. Um, we found that that's, and I've done that the whole time. Um, I, you know, get my approvals obviously from our CFO and work directly with that, but my work is so much more of, as we said, a service org to the people. And something that our org has built out over the last, I think, three years is an actual full people analytics team. Um, so we have, I think, like a seven-person people analytics team now that really is just focused on pretty much everything you just said. Because, like, if we said that we're going to monitor your emails and all that stuff, like, people would just quit, right? I think the only thing that would make people quit faster drafting is if we started, like, I don't know, drug testing for weed. Um, so, you know it's really just something that like we wouldn't even consider. And I think everyone kind of in the like tech world would agree with that because if someone was like, I'm going to start monitoring you and spying on you, whatever, they're just going to go somewhere else. Um, however, what we do do are two things. One for our more service organization, right? That's ticket-based that is tracked, right? And there is a standard that operation associates are, um, they're held to and they need to hit those ticket numbers and complete them on time, et cetera, right? That's much more straightforward and uh, easy to manage to get through the more uh, gray area of how people are feeling, what they want and all that stuff. That's where we actually utilize um, poly surveys via Slack. And we have a people analytics team that they're not just asking, I guess, the most straightforward questions, right? They're trying to really come up with hypotheses, uh, actually figure out like what's driving employees, where productivity is, because at the end of the day, we can derive whatever we want, but if the people are happy, then they're gonna be successful. And if they're not, they're gonna complain and it's gonna cause organizational uh, distress. So that's really it, right? And it is it is always whackable. It's never a straightforward solution, but this at least allows us to keep a tab on it. And it's quarterly people survey, uh, and then really putting in that time and effort to uh, really digest that info and come up with some key deliverables from it. And it's not easy and it does take a lot of time. Cool. I think we got time for one more question, and we do have one, and I think it's a good segue um, question here. How do you foresee, this is from Morgan, how do you foresee the future of the office and or the tenant experience playing out for your respective organizations? I'll go. Um, so, you know, for DraftKings, it's still up in the air. Um, but what the general consensus is, is that we do want people back in the office to some extent. What we will definitely not be doing is forcing people back five days a week. 
However, uh, we've definitely realized the importance of the collaboration. Uh, it's just kind of needed to some extent. And so what we've done is basically started to bucket employees into three categories. There's fully remote where there are exceptions. There are some people who have been hired as remote jobs, whatever the case may be. There is then the middle bucket, which is two to three days a week in the office. And then there's the far end of the spectrum, which is full-time in the office, which is somewhat voluntary, but more for some of the teams like um, SecOps, IT, some of workplace experience that are expected to be in each day. But from there, you know, we want to make sure that we are providing the option to go in, but not forcing somebody's hand because it, we have no data to suggest that we need to do that, right? That's what it comes down to. Uh, if we were forcing people back in five days a week, candidly, I think that would come from a selfish point of our founders of saying, I don't know what's going on. I don't trust what's happening. I want everybody back so I can keep an eye on them. And if I was running my business, maybe I would feel differently about that. But as an employee of this business, I feel like I've been able to keep my productivity at a higher level than ever by working from home. I miss the collaboration coming into the office and being with people a couple of days a week. And that's how I'm going to personally approach it. And that's how, you know, if we look at our data, that's how 85% of our population feels at this point, at least in North America. AMIA is a little different. Um, there's more of a desire, I'd say, to be in the office, but general sense is still pretty much the same. Yeah, and I think similar to Mac, you know, my, my position as a workplace leader is I'm agnostic in terms of like, yes, I would love people to be in the office. I think it's, it's good for my career if, if the offices have more importance, but I'm not here to try to tell people you should work here or there. Um, we're competing with people's living rooms and people's home offices. And so we need to give them reasons to come in. And so this is really my own editorial because I, I don't know what it's going to look like for sure. But what I think is going to happen is the office will be become a destination where people come to periodically. It's not going to be your, your place of work necessarily. It'll be a destination. So it'll, it'll need to support uh, events. It'll need to support team gatherings. Uh, it'll need to provide a lot more optionality in terms of um, different places to work and convene throughout the day. So I think the, the purpose of the office, again, this is my, my own editorial and we're not making these huge speculative investments, remodeling everything. But I, I think we'll see it become more of a, an event hub and a, these places where people intentionally come to convene for specific events or uh, specific meetings. Um, there may be people who do choose to work in the office uh, on a regular basis for whatever reason. Maybe it's, it's easier to work there than from their home. But that's where I see it's going. Uh, again, we're not going to go out and, and remodel everything and, and do that before we see people come back. But um, I think the office is going to ha have a different purpose for us. In fact, I know it is um, going forward, and it'll be inter interesting to see how that plays out. Awesome. I can add a few words too, just from, I guess, the contrarian point of view uh, for us. Like, well, we we need to be close to these MFCs. We need to be in in the city and and locally understanding, you know, where things are going wrong. So I think an element of how we we've done that to date, you know, in New York, we've we've actually secured a long term lease at, at this office, which is directly above our, our warehouse below. So that's been an incredibly rich environment just to, you know, monitor the growth of, of this facility in general. But I, I don't think that's the solution across the whole country. What we'll probably do and what we did um, previously was utilize something like a co-working space. We work industrious to, you know, have that, you know, professional space where people can come together um, in those markets. But um, we're still kind of figuring out if we need to have a particular you know, fixed HQ per, you know, each region that we're in. I, I think ultimately it's no, because, you know, we work in industries that built such a great infrastructure that we could take advantage of that. But ultimately, 
you know, we will have core people in, in office in some sort of a professional space um, just to, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a kind of a fast growing startup, we're in the process of polling our employees about, you know, what is their ideal work life situation? Um, because I think what, one thing that's interesting is the barriers uh, to hiring have, have come down geographically. You know, Mac is right that the, the grab for talent is insanely um, competitive. But one advantage I think that companies have today is that you no longer have to tie uh, a new hire to a physical location. So um, knowing what the, you know, standard or kind of array of work situations exist out there, you can now supply that to an employee, right? So like we have an office here in Boston, we have one in New York City, but everybody else is remote. Um, and they all have their own personal preferences and life situations that dictate how they want to work. So um, I, I agree with all of you guys. I don't think it's figured out yet, um, but I do think there's going to be a unique approach that every company needs to take. So yeah. um, we're... we're there's also just for the group, there's a good article, uh, I think it came out today in the Harvard Business Review, just talking about why companies are not cutting back on office space and pretty much talking about everything we just said, where, you know, the working style is changing, the amount of days in the office is definitely going to be changing, but how does that actually affect the space? That's where it becomes the question, right? And then it becomes toward use, um, but good article for uh, people on the panel to take a look at. Yeah, just one interesting statistic from, from our platform, and we, we provide lease administration, transaction management, lease accounting software, and essentially we gather all of our customers' leases into one place, and we look at the data that's being ingested into our system from time to time, and um, we saw over 2021 for office occupiers alone a 38% uptick in physical locations um, across all the portfolios that are in our system. So I think that kind of... Um, plays pretty well with what Dave was saying is like fewer small, uh, more, more smaller offices and fewer, um, you know, head offices. So I think it's, I think that trend is just going to continue even further until we get out of this mess. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I'm going to stop it here, guys. Um, we got a minute left. Carlos, do you have any final um, thoughts, um, announcements you want to share with anybody? But um, thanks so much to Alex, Dave and Mac for, uh, your awesome insights, your participation in the panel. Thanks to the Cornet New England, or I'm sorry, New York City chapter uh, for hosting. Um, Carlos, uh, why don't you take us home here? Yeah, nothing else from me. Thank you, Matt, for um, leading this conversation. And thanks to all the speakers and you know everyone in the audience for joining today. I um, hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Take care.